chapter 18, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Israel, King Hoshea, son of Allah, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, became king over Judah. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Abai and the daughter, the daughter of Zechariah. The narrator backs up a little bit because now we're backing up to right at the very end of Hosea's reign. Now, we've already read in chapter 17 that Hosea has already become king over Israel, the northern tribes. He's been taken off into exile, and all of Israel has been taken into exile. But before this happened, in the middle of his reign, Hezekiah over Judah came into power. So he's backing up just a little bit to introduce Hezekiah. So he's saying that basically in 701 is when Hezekiah's reign began. So about 21 years before Israel was taken into captivity, Hezekiah comes into power. So he's going to rule for about 20-something years before he's going to watch all this stuff happen to the north above him. So we're introduced to Hezekiah. He is different. Verse 3, he did what Yahweh approved just as his ancestor David had done. So he is a righteous king over Judah. Now, so far, that doesn't make him any different than some of the other righteous kings over Judah. He eliminated the high places and smashed the sacred pillars to bits and cut down the Asherah pole. Now, what is unique there? Yes, every single righteous king, it says they obeyed God, but they did not tear down the high places. Hezekiah finally did it. He is the first king of Judah that has destroyed the high places and smashed the idols. So already he's a cut above everybody else. Not only that, he demolished the bronze serpent that Moses had made for up to that time the Israelites had been offering incense to it. And it was called the Hushtom. Now remember back in Numbers chapter 20, God was punishing the Israelites as they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. At the end of the 40 years, there's only a few of the older generation left over, and they are just grumbling again. Like, and they have become very hostile towards Yahweh, and Yahweh sends serpents to bite them and kill them. And they're all dying of this, the, the venom. And so they cry out to God for rescue, and God says, if you bronze the serpent and put on a pole and everyone who looks at it will be healed. Now remember the serpent is an image of chaos. But the point isn't putting your faith in the chaos. Your point is that the serpent's been bronze and bronze is symbolic of judgment. So if you believe that God and only God has the power to subdue chaos and to eliminate evil and you look to the sign of God's sub- subjugation of chaos and surrender your chaos in your life to him, then you'll find healing. Basically, you've been creating chaos in Israel. You're rebelling, that's chaos. You're sinning, that's chaos. You're complaining, that's chaos. You're destroying lives, that's chaos. So you want chaos? I'll give you the serpent. But if you surrender to me and trust that I'll subdue the chaos, including the chaos in your own life, then you'll find healing. This is why Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up for the sins of human. I'm going to become chaos for you. And I'm going to allow God to subdue and destroy me so that he can bring order, redemption into your life. 
Then, right after that, God said, okay, now that you're all healed, destroy it, because it will become an idol in your life, and I know it. But they didn't, and it became an idol. And all 700 years, they've been worshiping as an idol, and Hezekiah pulled this thing. No, you can't do that. It's been a part of our culture for 700 years. It's an antique. We have museums, and we charge tickets for people to see it. And Hezekiah's like, don't care, and he destroys it. He destroys it completely. Not only that, he trusted in Yahweh, God of Israel. In this regard, he was, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Now remember, with Israel, we've been reading that he did more evil than all those who came before him. And in all the kings of Judah, we've been told that he was righteous like David. But now God comes along with Hezekiah and says he was more righteous than any king that ever came before him or after him in Judah. That means even more than David. This guy is the most righteous king in all of Judah that has ever lived, other than Jesus. He was loyal to Yahweh and did not abandon him. So unlike Joash, who was good at the beginning and fell away at the end, or some other people, Jehu, It says all the way to the very end, he persevered. He obeyed the commandments which Yahweh had given to Moses, and Yahweh was with him. He succeeded in all of his endeavors. That's amazing. God was with him so much that he succeeded in everything that he did. He is a true biblical Renaissance man. He... He rebelled against the king of Assyria and refused to submit to them. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from the watchtower to the city fortress. Okay, so he even began to attack the Philistines. Nobody has attacked the Philistines since David. Okay, remember briefly, Omri did, the, the grandfather of Ahab, but he had to give up that when the civil war broke out in the land. So it's been a long time since he did this. He defeated the Philistines all the way to Gaza, it says. So he drove them back down to this little sliver of land. That's basically the same sliver that David had accomplished. Now, this, for those of you who forgot to mention, this is a new map now. This is the Assyrian map. When the Assyrians came and controlled the land, after they deported Israel in the north, they divided all the north up into new tribal territories, new city-states and regions. These are important because now we have Samaria. Okay, now one of the things I forgot to mention is, remember Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. When the Assyrians came and deported everybody, they named this whole region right above Jerusalem, Samaria, after the capital. Now remember what's going to happen is some few, few, few Israelites were left behind as they come back. Some Israelites are going to return to the land. And some Israelites might leave for Judah and go back up to the north and settle there. Because when we get to Josiah, Josiah is going to go up there and start taking over. And it's possible that some Jews actually moved up to the north and started living there. Then you've got a bunch of pagans coming down and living there. And this is where the intermixing, the beginning of the intermixing of Israelites and pagan people begin to happen. So that when we get to the New Testament and the Gospels, we know them as the Samaritans where they're partly Jewish, but not completely Jewish. 
And so when we get to the second testament, we'll develop that development a little bit better, but that's kind of the idea there. So he is an extremely godly and successful king. Chapter 18, verse 9. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah's reign, it was the seventh year of the reign of Israel's king, Hoshea, son of Law, King Shalamanzer of Assyria marched up against Samaria and besieged it. After three years, he captured it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah's reign, in the ninth year of King Hoshea, king reign over Israel, Samaria was captured. And the king of Assyria deported the people of Israel to Assyria, and he settled them in Halah along the harbor and in the cities of the Medes. This happened because they did not obey Yahweh their God and broke his agreement with them, and they did not pay attention and to obey all the commands of Moses and Yahweh's servant had commanded. That's the fourth time he's repeated that. Okay, so he says this. So basically, remember, Shalamanzer IV is going to be the actual one who puts Israel, puts Israel under siege. Is Sargon II is going to take them in captivity. When Shalamanzer IV came and put Samaria under siege, he also came to Judah. And he began to attack Judah. And he begins to successfully conquer many of the cities in Judah. But not Jerusalem yet, because Jerusalem is a big, powerful city. Then eventually he's going to die. Sargon II is going to succeed him in 722, take Israel off. And Sargon II is going to be too busy to keep that conquest going. That's going to bring us to Sananacherub. Sananacherub is the third, fourth king since the, what's called the Neo-Assyrian Empire, the, new, the, the rise of the Assyrians. He is the fourth king, and he's going to try to begin to attack Judah. He's going to, listen, nothing, nothing in all the world has stopped any of these kings. Why would Judah be any different? So this guy is coming down, and he is the most cocky person <laughs> that probably exists. And somewhat, you can't blame him. I mean, he has built the first empire the world has ever seen. And nothing has stopped him or the three predecessors before him. And this guy is a pagan, he is violent, and he is prideful, and he is cocky. And he is coming to Judah and he's thinking Judah is going to put up nothing to him. And Hezekiah has nothing to stop him. There's no reason for him to think that he will fail. In chapter 18, verse 13, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, King Sanancherib of Assyria marched up against all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. King Hezekiah of Judah sent this message to the king of Syria, Assyria. Who was at Lachish. I have violated our treaty. If you leave, I will do whatever you demand. So the king of Assyria demanded that King Hezekiah of Judah pay 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver in Yahweh's temple and the treasuries of the royal palace. At the same, at that time, King Hezekiah of Judah stripped the metal overlays from the doors of Yahweh's temple and from the posts which he had planted, plated and gave them to the king of Assyria. So Lachish is a city north of Samaria. It was one of the greatest military fortified Israelite cities in the north. And basically, there are lots of stories of Lachish. When Lachish fell, fell, it was doomed for everybody. 
Like Lakish was like the greatest. It's the, the, the last stand. It's the wall. And when and everybody b- fell. And when it fell, they began to shine. The lantern went out. And Lakish was on such a high hill that many cities from all around Israel, who are also on high hills, when they saw the lantern, the light of Lakish go out, because that's usually what you do when you conquer a city, you extinguish their flame. Then that, that everybody got freaked out after that. It was Everybody knew they were all dead. They were all dead. So basically said, when Lakish fell, I began to rebel you. I not rebel against you specifically, but your predecessor. Now that you're here at my doorstep and I know I'm going to die, I am so sorry I rebelled. I won't rebel anymore. I will pay you money. Whatever you want, I will pay you. This shows you that Hezekiah knows he knows, stands no chance against the Nanachera. Unfortunately, Hezekiah then gives all his money, but also strips the temple of his gold and silver and gives it to God. Now remember, obeying all the commands of God does not mean that you're perfect. <laughs> no one can be perfect. So even despite that horrible thing, God still calls him the greatest most righteous king that's ever lived. So that says something about him overall. So he says, I will give you whatever you want. So he bribes the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria, verse 17, sent his commander, commanding general, the chief eunuch, and his chief advisor from Lachish to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, along with a large army. And he went up and arrived in Jerusalem. They went and stood at the conduit of the upper pool, which is located on the road to the field where they wash and dry cloth. cloth. They summoned the king, so Elikam, son Elikim, Eli, sorry, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace supervisor, accompanied by Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, son of Aspah, the secretary, went out to meet them. So here's the setup. Sinanacherib is in Lachish now. He has turned Lachish into his home base. That is his Syria home base, so to speak. I'm so far away from Nineveh right now that Lachish has now become my, my home base. And now he's sending people out. And he sends people out to the new cities that he's going to conquer, and he warns them and tells them to pay tribute. And basically, they go out first. They tax you. They warn you. They set up the siege ramps. They start the attack because the first part of the siege is really boring. You're just basically surrounding the city, eating and drinking and waiting for them to starve to death. So he doesn't want to be there. He's a king. He's not going to be boring. He wants to be there when it's time for killing everybody. So he's in Lachish. So he sends his messengers down. And then Hezekiah sends out his messenger to the wall. So Hezekiah is in the palace of Jerusalem. But he doesn't go out to speak to the messengers. He sends his messengers out. Because I'm not going to speak to the king's messengers my messengers will speak to his messengers, and his messenger, like my people will get together with your people and we'll work this thing out. So Hezekiah's messengers, his representatives, that's a better way, is standing on the wall and they're looking down at the representatives of Sinanacherib. And the Sinanacherib's representatives are going to read this letter from Sinanacherib to Hezekiah. So even though they're reading it, it's the words of Sinanacherib. Verse 19, the chief advisor said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. Now, all throughout this, Sinanacherib is going to be called the king. And Hezekiah is going to be called nothing. 
And it's the narrator's way of showing you that Assyria has the upper hand. Your claim to have a strategy and a military strength is just empty talk. To whom are you trusting that you would dare to rebel against me? Now look, you must be trusting in Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff. If a man leaves for support on it, it punctures his hand and wounds him. This is what Pharaoh, king of Egypt, does to all who trust him. Now the first thing that he says is, everybody was making alliances with Egypt. When Assyria came, the only other big bad dog in the neighborhood in the world was Egypt. And Egypt was massacring and killing people too, but hey, a slightly friendlier dog that only bites you half the time is better than the dog that bites you all the time. So they would go and try to make alliances with Egypt to protect them from Assyria. So Nanacher says this, you think that you actually can stand against me? You think you can stop me? First point that I have to make. The only reason you think that you can stand against me is because you've got an alliance with Egypt. But how much of an idiot do you have to be to make an alliance with Egypt? Egypt is a reed that when people land on it, it breaks and stabs them. Basically, it's this poetic way of saying that everybody that makes an alliance with Egypt, Egypt always betrays them and abandons them and attacks them and stabs them in the back. Now you're going to have a bloody hand where your staff was supposed to support you. Now it's been driven through your hand. You've got to be an idiot to think that Egypt will actually be there for you. That's his first point in his letter. Now, all of his arguments are very good arguments. You don't become dictator and emperor and massacre of the world without being intelligent. <laughs> Number second point he's going to make is this. Perhaps, verse 22, you will tell me that you are trusting in Yahweh, your God. But Hezekiah is the one who eliminated his high places and altars and then told the people of Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship at his altar in Jerusalem. So he says, now you think you're going to trust in Yahweh? Yahweh is not going to help you. Yahweh is ticked at you and hates you because you destroyed all the high places where you could worship him. And his way of thinking as a pagan, that makes perfect sense. The gods control regions. And the more places that you worship the gods, the more powerful you become. And if you just start going into Walmart buildings and burning them down, the president of Walmart is going to be very unhappy. Because the more Walmart stores that are burned down, the more money that he is losing. And then to his competitors. That's how the ancient pagan world. God doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything from creation. So you can tear down all the altars that you want, even though he doesn't like that, and it won't change his power. But theologically speaking, he also said that you're only allowed to worship me in the high temple. And I want you to tear down all the high places because I don't need them and I don't want them and they lead you astray. But in a pagan way of thinking, this is perfect thinking. This is perfect theology. This is rational arguments. But here's the thing. The subtle thing, it's very easy to think, oh, Sinana Cherub, you're such an idiot. Don't you know how Israelite theology works? But that's not what the narrator wants you to think. What the narrator wants you to think is, wow, Israel, you're so pathetic. You failed so miserably to share who Yahweh was to the world that the world thinks that Yahweh is just like a pagan god. 
And we saw that in chapter 17, and we saw that in chapter 18 now. This is Israel failing to be the image of God. If Israel had truly been the image of God, Sinan and Cherub would have never made that argument. It's not his stupidity. It's the lack of Israel's obedience and faithfulness to God. This is the question we have to ask ourselves. A lot of times we're like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with the world today? Don't they know that you should be saying Merry Christmas at Christmas time? Or you should be doing this and you can't do that? And you don't treat people that way. And you, Oh my gosh, how can they pass these laws? Well, what do you expect from people who don't know the Word of God? The failure has been largely on our part teaching them. And this is what I tell people is like, you can't expect pagan people who do not know God to say Merry Christmas and to pass moral laws and to act in godly ways. Jesus did not require that of you before you accepted Christ. You accepted Christ because you didn't want to go to hell. And then Christ came and entered you and began to refine you and redeem you and renew you so that you actually would want to love him despite a reward or not. And you actually begin to value these kind of things. And then we turn on the world and we expect them to act like Christians when they don't know what Christianity really is. And we ask them, ask them to think and act morally when they don't have morality taught to them. And when it is taught to them, we're usually condemning them and judging them for being evil people. And that's how we teach morality. Don't you know you shouldn't be sleeping around? Well, that's not discipleship. That's judgment. And I'm not saying that all of you have done that. I'm saying the American church as a whole. And we get really shocked that the world is falling away from God. America is falling away from God. We get really shocked that governmental leaders are actually making decisions like that. That Hollywood dared to put that stuff in movies. That people would actually say Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And the real problem is that we haven't been the light as a whole. We haven't really pursued the image of God. Because when we went to look at most Christians... Most non-Christians say they don't see a difference between Christians and non-Christians. And this is what God is saying here. Don't go and judge the world. We're never called to judge the world. We're called to witness to the world and to share Christ with them. We're called to judge the church and hold them accountable. Don't judge Sinan Cherub for Israel's failure to teach him about God. And a pagan way of thinking, this is perfect logic. And this is one of the things is, yes, when I watch YouTube videos and I watch things and all that kind of stuff, it saddens me deeply when I see the things that are happening in America. But at the same time, I can't be angry at them. And I can't judge and condemn them because I would be doing the same thing if I didn't know God and have the Holy Spirit in me. They need Jesus, not a lecture. So Sinanacherib, this is his second point. You've angered Yahweh, and he is no longer with you. So far, nothing's horribly evil what he said. Verse 23. Now he goes to his third point. Make a deal with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, provided that you can even have enough riders for them. Certainly you will not refuse one of my master's minor officials and trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen. Furthermore, it was by the command of Yahweh that I marched up against you and this place to destroy it. Yahweh told me, march up against this land and destroy it. So the third point is this. If you make a deal with me, I won't kill all of you. I'll still conquer your city, 
But in fact, I'll give you even 200 horses to attack me and fight me. If you can even find people to sit on the horses. But because you can't, because you're so pathetic, just make a deal with me and I'll let you live, but I'll still control you. Isn't it better to be ruled over than be dead? That is a very logical argument, but it's a lie. And all you had to do is watch the several hundred nations north of you get massacred by the Assyrians to know that's a lie. But there's always people who buy in the lie and take the deal anyways. Then the last point he makes here is this. In fact, your God told me to attack you. Your God is backing me. Your God is supporting me. Your God wants me to take you out. Now, he's right. How, why in the world would I say he's right? Something we haven't really talked about a whole lot yet, but something else has been happening at this time period other than just the kings, the prophets. Amos has already shared his message. Hosea has already shared his message. Zephaniah has already shared his message. And every single one of them Their entire ministry, as they've been standing up on top of pulpits, speaking to hundreds of Israelites, and going from city to city to city to city to city, speaking their message over and over and over again, what have they said? Because of your sins, Yahweh is backing and sending the Assyrian Empire. And when you're an emperor of the world conquering people, it pays It does you justice to tune into their Fox and CNN news. And the prophets are the Fox and CNN news. And he's been listening to them. He's been reading potentially. And he's like, wow, I've conquered all the nations and stopped them all, but I've never had a god of another nation back me up. This is amazing. And he literally thinks that Yahweh's backing him. And he's right. He's right to a certain point. He's kind of correct that Yahweh's backing him because Yahweh said he's backing him because Yahweh's sending the Assyrians. But he's kind of wrong, and that's where we're going next. We're kind of we're going next. So the first part of his argument is Yahweh backs me. That's right. Things shift here in the letter. Verse 26. Elikam, the son of Hilakai, Shebna, and Joah, the said to the chief advisor, speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Don't speak with us in the Judaite dialect and the hearing of the people who are on the wall. The representatives of Hezekiah say, hey, speak to us in Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is becoming the the new world language. There is no world language yet. I mean, you can't have a world language when you don't have an empire. Once this empire begins to grow, Aramaic is starting to become the new language. And Aramaic, a lot of parts of half of Daniel is going to be in Aramaic. Many of the things that Jesus says is going to be in Aramaic. And Jesus spoke in Aramaic. And most people spoke in Aramaic by the time of Jesus' life. So this is like the English of the ancient world. And it's starting to become brand new. And basically these advisors who are educated men and deal in foreign policies, they know Aramaic because that's like having a representative or a businessman not knowing English in the world. So they know it. So now they're getting scared. They're like, oh my gosh, they're speaking Hebrew. And all the Hebrews around us know Hebrew. And they're hearing this. And he's making arguments that they might think in and they'll turn against us and rebel against us and will collapse. So they speak down and they say, don't speak in Hebrew, speak in Aramaic. Because everybody doesn't know Aramaic except for just us. 
So this is their way of controlling the media. <laughs> I don't want the people to hear what CNN is saying. Let's just switch over to Fox. This is what he's saying. But from this point, from up to this point, he's been addressing them in singular pronouns. He's been talking to them. But just to kind of stab them in the side, he says, no. Not only am I not going to stop speaking Hebrew, I'm going to turn to the people and start facing them and speak to them and start using the plural pronouns. You should have never said that. Because now I'm going to address them. But the chief advisor said, no, my master did not send me to speak these words only to your master and to you. His message is also for the men who sit on the wall, for they will eat their own excrement and drink their own urine along with you. Well, you're all going to be under siege, and you're all going to suffer, and you're all going to die equally. It doesn't matter how much money you have, how much power, you're all going to suffer, and you're all going to die. So the chief advisor then stood there and called out loudly in the Judaite dialect, Listen to the message of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you, for he is not able to rescue you from my hand. Don't let Hezekiah talk to you into trusting in Yahweh when he says, Yahweh will certainly rescue us. This city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Send me a token of your submission and surrender to me. Then each one of you may eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern. Until I come and take you to a land just like your own, a land of grain, new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, then you will live and not die. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says that Yahweh will rescue us. So the next point he makes is, Hezekiah has been telling you to trust in Yahweh, and Yahweh will rescue you, but that's not going to happen. If you come and surrender to me, I will let you live in your own land and eat off of your own land until I attack this city. And then I'll carry you off in great chariots to a new land where you'll have your own vineyards and grapevines. That's a lie, because we've already seen what happens. But here's the thing. He could be playing to past memories. Because Tiglath-Pilazar III was not the first one to deport. The kings before him of Assyria also deported, but they deported on a very, very minor level because they didn't have the infrastructure to deport like Tiglath did. And when they deported, they did put you in chariots. And they did ride you off in luxury and comfort, because they were only deporting people that they wanted on their side, the highly educated and the physically trained. And if they treated you really well and brought you to Dubai and put you in the best hotel with the greatest room service and all the entertainment you want, then maybe you would make a business deal with them. And so they treated you with luxury. When Tiglath came along, he says, I don't care. I just want to rule the world. And he's the one that started the massacring and the deportation in violent, horrible ways. So he could be saying, we have done this, which is the truth. But that's not what we do anymore, which is what he's not telling them. So that's what he appeals to. Then he goes on this, says this, verse 33. Have any of the gods of the nations actually rescued this land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seravim and Henna and Avah? Indeed, did any of the gods rescue Samaria from my power, whom among all the gods of the lands have rescued their lands from my power? So how can Yahweh rescue Jerusalem from my power? 
The people were silent and did not respond, for the king had ordered, don't respond now. This is his final argument. Yahweh will not save you, because no other God of any other nation has ever saved their people. I have steamrolled the entire world north of you. And there are hundreds upon thousands of gods out there. And millions of people prayed to their gods, and their gods failed them miserably. And we rolled over them like a giant tank over a gnat. Yahweh is no different. And that's where he's not right. He's kind of right that Yahweh is supporting him and backing him. But he's not right because he didn't submit to Yahweh. He didn't acknowledge that Yahweh was greater than him. And this is the one of the things that the prophets are going to say. When we get to Nahum, Nahum is going to attack Assyria. Because Nahum is going to say, yes, Yahweh appointed you to be his tool of judgment on Israel. But the hammer decided that it was better than the master that wielded the hammer. And that's why you're going to die. You basically became prideful and arrogant and thought you were better than Yahweh and stronger than Yahweh. And Yahweh couldn't stop you. Do not confuse Yahweh's backing with your superiority to Yahweh. And it is up to this point, if all things have been going the way it should have been, Yahweh probably would have allowed you to be destroyed. But the minute that Assyria said, I'm better than Yahweh, that's when Yahweh said, oh no. The, the, the exile stops here. And that's where Yahweh is going to respond to this. Verse 37, Elikim, son of Helikai, the palace supervisor who represented Hezekiah, accompanied by Shanab, the scribe, and Joah, son of Aspah, the secretary, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and reported to him what the chief advisor had said. 